If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel, and for this episode, we're going to have the first guest of the podcast, and that is a buddy of mine from the Liberty Movement, Liam McCollum and I first met on Reed Coverdale's Naturalist Capitalist podcast, and we're both members of the Libertarian Party and Mises Caucus. Liam is a recent graduate from the University of Montana's philosophy and journalism programs, and he is the host of The Liam McCollum Show, a series of interviews covering topics ranging from Christianity, libertarianism, foreign policy, and local politics in Montana. His writings have been published in the Foundation for Economic Education, the Libertarian Institute, Antiwar.com, and LPMisesCaucus.com. He is a Libertarian Party Mises Caucus organizer in Montana and is the social media director for the Montana Libertarian Party. He is also the manager for the LP Mises Caucus's new Ask an Austrian series, which I highly recommend. Liam. Thanks for coming on the show, man. How you doing tonight? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm very excited for this new project. Yeah, I am too. Always been a fan of the uh, of the Libertarian Christian Institute, and I'm excited to be part of their efforts to to branch out and reach more people. And with everything going on in the world and stuff, with the, you know the stuff with Russia and Ukraine and just the general kind of geopolitical climate. You know, I thought about who I wanted to have on as a first guest to kind of get into those subjects. So I thought that you would be a perfect fit because I know that's something that you care about a lot and you go into a lot in your show and your work. So we're going to get into all of that. But first, although I gave you an introduction there, maybe you want to give yourself your own introduction beyond just, you know, your things that you're doing and maybe just introduce yourself personally and sort of your background and, you know, maybe just briefly how you came to libertarianism. Yeah, it was actually, I grew up in a very conservative household, Christian conservative household, and would have supported Trump in 2016 if I was old enough to vote. And then I joined an honor civics class my senior year of high school, and my teacher was a libertarian. And he introduced me to Ron Paul, Tom Woods, Lysander Spooner. And from there, it's kind of a rabbit hole. It was kind of like climbing a ladder towards liberty. I went issue by issue, and the hardest was definitely foreign policy for me. It's, I think it's foreign policy that was like the last battle that I had to go through spiritually to finally you know, get to libertarianism. And I grew up in a very conservative household where we, we revered the military. I have a lot of people in my family and people I'm close with who served in the military and currently serve in the military. So I always kind of respected that culture and just the history of that. And it was actually the Trump presidency that really opened my eyes to how corrupt the military industrial complex is. You know, it, it was specifically, I think, the Moab when the Trump administration dropped the Moab and kind of the backstory in that 
woke me up to how corrupt things were. And, and the fact that Trump wasn't even aware of the fact that it was about to be dropped when it was dropped. So a lot of backstory and I kind of rushed through how I got to libertarianism there. But fundamentally, I think that the biggest thing was foreign policy that opened my eyes to it all. Yeah, and I know we've talked about this before and the Trump presidency definitely opened my eyes, although it was very different in the details coming from the political left and and all that. But when I reminisce about my old days on the left, it's, it's very uh, hard to remember that I was on the left because of how foreign today's left feels to me. Like I remember when being radically anti-war was like kind of the norm on the left, especially among like my crowd. Like I was in the Bernie Sanders scene and all that. And, you know, I, I would have basically like Tulsi Gabbard, you know, even though she's left the Democratic Party, like basically everything in terms of like her political stances and stuff is sort of how I was in that like 2014, 2015, 2016 era. But today it seems like um, it's definitely weird to look at the Democrats today uh, sort of like leading the march and beating the drum for military conflict and whatnot, which is something, it's weird because I remember when the Democrats were like starting out in like 2015, 2016 with their attacks on him, one of the biggest criticisms you heard was he's going to get us into all of these wars and he's going to, and don't get me wrong, he definitely kept us in a lot of wars that I wish he wouldn't have. But it's just funny that he didn't really get us into any new ones. And it's now the Democrats trying to get us into new ones. Really ironic. I think one of the most positive developments has been the push for kind of the right wing of this country to become more anti-war and non-interventionist. Like the fact that Tucker Carlson is such a large voice on Fox News talking to people like my grandparents who, you know, probably would be propagandizing supporting a war. The fact that they get to listen to him every single night explain why this is really dumb <laughs> is awesome. And, you know, in a sense, it, it was the corruption of the Trump administration and, and the Republican Party that woke me up to libertarianism and foreign policy. And But still, I think the spirit that Trump's campaign at the time, kind of just being like America first and, and non-interventionist, was still a good spirit. It was just kind of misled. And... I'm happy that that has started to animate more parts of the Republican Party, even though they should probably be helped further in that direction. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I wanted to get into a lot tonight. You and I, both as Christians, both take a very strong anti-war stance. And I'm kind of interested to dive into answering the question of sort of like, what is the basic Christian argument to be anti-war? And and maybe a good place to start would be sort of going more into detail about how that developed in you, since you said, you know, because I've always kind of been anti-war, so that's sort of something that as I transitioned to libertarianism, nothing really changed on that front. I mean, I definitely became more informed about like, you know, the history of our involvement in the Middle East and got more sort of like uncorrupted facts and stuff than I had before. But it wasn't a big hurdle for me, like it sounds like it was for you. So, you know, maybe share a little bit about what specific hurdles and then what specific arguments or information led to your mind being changed. And, you know, maybe we can draw from that sort of like what the basic argument is as Christians and as libertarians for why we oppose war and what it means to oppose war. Cause I feel like that I almost, I almost feel like it's a little bit vague when we just say we're anti-war because it's some people might go like, well, I'm not pro-war and, and just think that like, broadly speaking, they're anti-war, even though it means something very different for us, obviously. 
Well, I think I would have came from that perspective earlier. I would have said right. like that the anti-war protesters are stupid and misled and it's just not the reality of, of the world. And I, I still grant that war will always be a thing on earth since this is a fallen world and we are, we are fallen creatures. But I think what originally, as I became more libertarian, what was kind of a hurdle for me is I just really adopted the forgiveness and the mercy aspect of God and, and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think I became more of like a Tolstoyan pacifist. So I thought that we would always have to turn the other cheek. And I think over time, actually, it was the more I read Rothbard, I came to this idea that, you know, at the basis of libertarian theory and libertarian theory of foreign policy, there are two different principles. And those are the principles of the non-aggression principle and methodological individualism. So the first being that we shall not initiate force for political or social goals. And I think more properly, it would be said that it's a moral precept maintaining that aggression or the initiation of force against the persons or property of others or the threat thereof is unjust. So it was that first kind of principle and, and learning about that in ethics of liberty that led me in the direction of being more of a, a pacifist. I think I eventually realized that this isn't correct either. And that what I mean by anti-war is not necessarily opposed to self-defense or opposed to the defense of one's sovereignty or anything like that. But when I'm speaking about being opposed to war, I'm speaking about the way that we currently think of war and the government's wars. And I think the proper application of the non-aggression principle must really be understood through the second principle that I talked about, which is methodological individualism. And this is what Mises talks about in human action when he, when he says that there is no real collective. When, when we're speaking of a collective, we're actually talking about individuals acting. So he talks about, for instance, the hangman, someone who's hanging a criminal. Methodological individualism would say that the hangman is actually responsible for hanging that criminal, not the people that are governed by the state in which the hangman is employed by. So when I started to see that the current way that governments impose war is in such a collectivist punishment type of way, in which in some sense, it's talked about as if me, an American citizen, is behind the U.S.'s efforts in the Middle East or in Ukraine. I think that's just not true. And I think that we have to keep in mind that it is, it is these individual actors in the military and the government and other governments that are acting and the ones that are aggressing against individuals unjustly. It is not entire countries. Right. So yeah. when, for instance, during the last few months, Zelensky has said that the entire Russian population is responsible for this war in Ukraine. And he has requested that the West ban any Russian citizens from traveling to their countries. And I think that this is just a fundamental misunderstanding of war. And we should not feed into this kind of collectivist punishment idea. You know, this collectivist punishment idea is, is what Osama bin Laden used to justify attacking civilians in the Twin Towers and his messages to the world. When asked why he killed civilians, he said, well, the civilians elected their governments, which attacked our people and 
which are based in Saudi Arabia and the Holy Land. So again, here we see a fundamental error in not applying methodological individualism and not blaming the real actors and the real aggressors, but somehow saying that the people are responsible, causally responsible for this aggression as well. And I just reject this. And I, you know, Zelensky is adopting the same belief and countries that also draft their people adopt this same belief. And it makes no room for conscientious objectors. And it doesn't identify individual actors and their own conscious beliefs. And when Mises is talking about praxeology and, and the idea that humans act, he says that we're dealing with actions of individuals. And he says that all actions are performed by individuals. And there is no social collective that has an existence and a reality right. outside we are, of. We are not Borg. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a Star Trek reference. Exactly. And there is no existence and reality outside of the individual actions within it is, is a quote from human action. And he, again, he uses that hangman reference. And later he, he says, a cathedral is something other than a heap of stones joined together. But the only procedure for constructing a cathedral is to lay one stone upon another. Or a hockey team, for instance, he, he says, if a hockey team, a player from a hockey team were to say, we are the world's best hockey team, there's no confusion. Everyone knows that there's individuals and some players are better than others. But then when we talk about countries, people seem to get confused. So I think it was actually libertarianism really informed my Christian beliefs because I had always adopted, I think, a just war theory, especially when I was more conservative. And then as I went through this journey politically, I became more pacifist. But then as I read Rothbard, I realized, well, it is possible for us to have self-defense. We, we should defend others and that maybe there is some room for just war theory insofar as it follows like a response against the initiation of force. Rothbard says that libertarianism is very beautiful and that it says that what is illegitimate is force that is initiated, but what is legitimate is force in response to it, proportional force in response to the initiation of force. So I think that Christianity has room for that, but the current way that our leaders and our governments understand war is not in that way. So I think that it was libertarianism that actually eventually informed my Christian idea of just war theory. And when I, when I say anti-war, I think it's a little messy non-interventionist is better. But what I really mean is that I'm against the current collectivist punishment that our governments try to impose on other people and right. other governments. It almost ends up being anti-war at the end of the day, not necessarily because of like an opposition to a just war theory, but rather because like sort of like the burden that uh, people would have to meet to actually engage in a just war is so high that like effectively it just doesn't happen. Like, People just wouldn't, you know, I guess like, you know, on paper it's possible, but like I think in, in actuality, if we didn't have kind of what you highlighted that Rothbard and, and Mises explained sort of like this conflation of the individual with like the state and sort of like just, you know, this sort of like group action that happens, I don't think that people would be able to easily justify things because it's, it is through that collectivization I think that people do because it's, it's sort of like a post hoc sort of like our government does something and so people historically have just been like well the government did it so we did it and then like 
if you are conceptualizing those those actions as things that you did and you participated in on some level, then you kind of have a bias towards like trying to justify the action. And now, of course, there's also, you know, government propaganda, false flags and misinformation and, you know, all sorts of stuff that plays into getting the public on board. And it is interesting to see how that is a check against government waging war is that if they can't get the public on board, they almost, you know, that that does still thwart them from doing what they want, which, you know, was very interesting to see that happen, um, you know, over over the last, uh, you know, 10 years, you've seen instances where people just became so, uh, you know, not on board with, with certain proposed military interventions that they basically couldn't do it. Kind of the same way that, that uh, you know, mask mandates and different things sort of, you know, started to go by the wayside. But but it but it is one of those things where it's like they 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 try to take so much and then we might push back, but then we'll still end up, you know, not not like we, you and me, but just like we, the American people, still still end up just kind of overlooking or justifying so much ongoing military interventionism and, you know, and warfare, both direct and indirect, just because it's like, oh well, it's not, you know. World War Three, so <laughs> it's similar to to how the battle against gun rights is is sort of one. It's like it's like we're gonna take all your AR-15s, and everyone's like, no. It's like, all right, well, we'll just we'll just ban bump stocks. It's like, oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, and you made a comment earlier about like uh, the people being responsible for the war, and I I do want to just say that like in a sense, I think as Christians and maybe even as libertarians, we can say we are responsible in a sense. It's just that I don't want to say that we are legally responsible in the way that the non-aggression sure. principle and, and libertarianism sets sets up a, a legal and retributive justice oh, yeah. system. We, like, we, de- we definitely have a moral imperative and responsibility, I think, as Christians especially, to oppose unjust violence, especially violence that's being perpetuated against the innocents. I think one of the things that struck me early on is I, you know, I would just look at the horror that our military was causing today like it wasn't like past tense it was like today and you know looking i remember i remember being in high school and my history teacher was showing us you know pictures of like iraqi children and families and 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 villages and stuff just devastated and and how they were afraid of us and all this and in my head i just kept on you know remembering the words you know that what you've done unto the least of these you've done unto me and i'm like well (laughs) <laughs> if if America is this Christian nation like the evangelicals Christian community likes to say, and this is what we're doing to the least of these, we're sending Jesus some very mixed messages, I think, about our commitment to him if if those actions are are done unto him. It's just it's so contrary, like, you know, there can be a lot of nuance in terms of, you know, should Christ there's some Christians who make the pacifist argument, some who would make the accept you know say that self defense is okay there's a little bit of nuance that comes into play when you're talking about how to balance loving your neighbor with loving your na- your enemy but i think you can we can all hopefully agree that when jesus was saying that what you've done unto the least of these you've done unto me he probably didn't mean like dropping tomahawk missiles on them like probably doesn't quite fit into the description of 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 loving your neighbor or your enemies so I think that there's, you know, definitely an issue there. I don't know what your perspective is in terms of, you know, other other than that sort of like collectivist mindset, you know, what 
what are Christians getting wrong in terms of, you know, you know, not, not just sort of like the general way that the state tricks people and, and sort of like sets us up to, to, to support the, the wars that they engage in. But like what sort of like, you know, trying to think of like what theological errors people are making. And I mean, I guess dispensationalism comes into it a little bit. You know, some people think that we're supposed to be a Christian nation going out and sort of like, you know, I mean, so like, you know, make the world a safer democracy was co-opted by the evangelical church to be like, make the world safer Christianity, which again, doesn't really fit with the whole, like, you know, you'll be persecuted and the world will hate you. But I don't know that, that those are my thoughts. I don't, I don't know if you have anything you want to add there, any, any insights. Yeah. First off, I did want to say that I wanted to make it clear that I'm not ordained or anything as a pastor. And, and I don't want to be, I don't want to come off as like, I'm, I'm telling Christians or libertarians that they ought to have these positions. But I just want people to know that like, this is how I feel. And I might mischaracterize my church and, and the church, uh, the way that the church feels about some things. And those are my fault alone. So I would, would just encourage people like look into these things themselves. And I just wanted to humble myself quickly before that. But um, I think that, I don't know if I would have any like theological lessons per se, but I think that there is, I think on that dispensational point, my church, the Lutheran church has had this issue where a lot of the fractions in the church have, have been in trying to go out and have pulpit fellowship with other churches instead of trying to prioritize doctrinal purity first and, and ensuring that our church and our community and our locality and our families are, are aware of right doctrine. Instead, we've, we've tried to go out and we've tried to uh, kind of be dispensational in that way. And I think that it mirrors our foreign policy. And I mean, mirrors are just the way we think of politics in general, the, the way that we, you know, what, whatever happens in New York seems to somehow speak on the matters in Montana. When, when really, I think that we should be very locally focused and focused on our own lives and, and try to make sure that, you know, our house is cleaned first before we go out into the world and, and try to fix things. Yeah. What are Jordan Peterson's 12 rules, which is so true. You know, it's like so many, so many problems are solved by just if you observe, like, you know, make sure you have your own house and like as much order as possible before you go and try to, you know, like, cause it's like, if you, if you start off on a bad foundation at home and then you go and try to tell other people how to, how to do things, you, it's just going to exemplify the problem. Yeah. And I, I think that that, that kind of principle, it's, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's theologically observed. I mean, might be. It's definitely a political thing that I've observed over time, and it, I think it's just common sense that um, you know there there's this parable that that's talked about, like about going down the short but long path or the long but short path. And uh, the short but long path is the one that is short distance in in respect to its distance, but it has thorns along the entire path, and it actually takes you much longer than it, than it appeared at first. And then there's the long but short path, which is long in respect to its distance, but because it doesn't have thorns, you actually get to the endpoint much quicker. And I think this 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 can be applied there. You know, working on our communities and working face to face with people, with our friends, with our families, with our churches first, and ensuring that 
you know, our houses in order before we go out into the world is actually, you know, it's, it's not fixing all of the world's problems immediately. However, if we work person by person and we ensure that these foundations and the, the foundations in our communities are, are right, uh, then maybe that is the way we can achieve the endpoint that we want. We have to start here at home and, and make sure that we have our eyes at home so that while we're trying to solve all the world's problems, our home doesn't get disordered. Right. We need to, our eyes here locally, I think, in, in our own lives. Yeah, and I think there's, there's like a parallel that I see between sort of like libertarian emphasis on decentralization and localism and sort of the role that I think the church is supposed to play. I definitely think that, you know, we are supposed to be salt and light onto the world, right? And we're supposed to, uh, you know, go out there and preach the gospel. And, you know, we're not called to have, you know, I don't want to be, as a consequence of being anti-war, give the impression that I think that Christians should just be like, you know, isolationist, which is also, again, something that people will accuse anti-war libertarians of being like, you guys are just isolationists and protectionists. And and it's like, well, you know, and sometimes there's a maybe a shred of truth to that when it comes to political systems, because like, I kind of want my government to be more isolationist and protectionist a little bit, you know, not to the extent where we're, you know, limiting free trade and, and you know, and travel, but, but I certainly don't want my government to be, you know, I don't want my, my local township government to be like, you know, hey, let's go tell people in Maryland how to live their lives. It's like, I want to, I, I do want to, I want, want them to be somewhat focused, you know, inward rather than outward. But the church definitely more complicated. But I think, you know, the church kind of is like multi-tiered and, you know, the church can impact and shape the world and the culture by starting in our communities. We're spread out enough and there are enough of us that, you know, kind of like, you know, a little cliche. It's like, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. It's kind of like what it sounds like I'm saying. And, you know, but it's cliche for a reason. It's like, you know, trying to force change in society doesn't work. And I, I think that doesn't work. You know, one of the premises of this whole podcast is obviously I don't think that works in terms of, you know, government. And I don't think we can pass laws to compel people to live more morally or to live more in a Christian sense. But I think just as much as government is ill-equipped to do that at home, it's also ill-equipped to do that abroad, to try, to try to like take Christian values and sort of try to push them out into the world behind the power of the sword or the gun in a more modern sense. But the church definitely has that global call, but I think the global call is answered by people planting, you know, I mean, I think the only way that it would go outward is that like, you know, we go and we plant churches and we go and we plant orphanages and we go and we plant women's shelters and, and, and different things like that. And we, but then like we're planting those things to then be pillars in the community. So it, it all circles back to that community emphasis and, you know, building up local roots in your, with the people in your area and your neighbors and leading people to Christ and therefore consequentially leading them to living in a more Christ-like fashion and impacting the culture, you know, one town and one city and one neighborhood at a time. 
Now that kind of reminds me of that parable you said. There's the long, short road and the short, long road. And I think people often get tempted by the short, long road, which is like, oh man, there, there's all these cultural problems and there are these people across the world that you know, don't have freedom, don't have democracy and don't have Christianity. And they have these different religions. And I think it's been easy for the evangelical church to, and even the Catholic church, I guess, just evangelicals, but it's been easy for Christians to, I think, sort of, you know, post hoc rationalize that, you know, well, this is what we have to do as Christians. You know, we have to go out and engage the world. And it's like, but we're using the wrong mechanism and the wrong means to do so. We should instead be, you know, doing as Christ, you know, told us to do. And, you know, I think being salt and light looks a lot more like wash Jesus washing his apostles' feet or feeding the 5,000 than it does whatever the U.S. military is doing right now. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it any better. But I do think there is room. So, like, when it comes to, to war, we, we had talked about before the podcast just about what we should pray about um, and kind of like what we should uh, do in times of war. And uh, as for the Christian take here, I think there is still room where we need to be speaking out against these these wars, even though I, I would say that we need to focus locally. Uh, we, we are, I think we are called to obey God rather than men. Uh, I believe that's an Acts. And, and that was when the apostles were arrested for preaching the, the gospels. So there is absolutely room here for resistance and I think what that really looks like, though, is continuing to focus on localities. And you and I have talked about the Magdeburg Confession before, in which the Roman church tried cracking down on the city of Magdeburg after the Reformation and, and, and their confession that they wrote appealing to uh, the Bible in defense of uh, resisting higher authorities and allowing lesser magistrates to, to push back against higher authorities who have disobeyed the word. And, and I think that there's absolutely room for this and, and we need to keep it in mind, even though we talk about focusing locally. And um, I also wanted to say just, uh, we should always also orient this back to the cross and be reminded that we are told there will be rumors of war and there will be wars uh, and that the, the end times are coming. But while, while we're on earth, there will be wars because we are fallen. Uh, we are we live in a fallen world, so I think we also need to be reminded that the only perfect solution for the brokenness of the world is uh, Jesus Christ's salvation and or Jesus Christ's crucifixion and our salvation. We do. I think we need to also be reminded that the wages of sin are death, and we we are condemned to die, and Jesus is the only fix. So. While we are talking about all of the the political aspects here and all of the uh, uh, cultural aspects, fundamentally, it all needs to be turned back to Christ and Christ's victory over sin and death. Uh, and that we also pray that this should be this view should be extended to Washington. And I wanted to share some of some of the prayers that that my church would pray about um, because, like I said, I don't want to say that I'm. I'm preaching and I don't want to claim that I'm preaching or that I've gone through seminary or anything like that, but I, I do want to share what I would do and what I hope to continue to do. But my, my church in times like this, we, we pray the litany and, and we pray that Lord has mercy over us and uh, that Christ has mercy over us. And we pray 
that he is gracious to us and that he delivers us from all sin and error, from all evil and from sudden and evil death. We also say we, we hope he delivers us from pestilence and famine and from war and bloodshed uh, and calamity by fire and water. And this is all with the expectation that these things will happen. These, these are in scripture that we will suffer. And I, I think sometimes we, we go through, we kind of have like this normalcy bias and we get caught up in believing that, you know, times are good. And because yesterday was good, there will be no suffering. And, and we distance ourselves from God because we're, we're living in, in these good times and, and we forget about Christ and, and our salvation. So uh, I think that times like COVID, times like this current war and the future sufferings are used to pull us back. So, you know, something that I learned about during the pandemic from my, my cousin, uh, Donald Corcoran, who I've interviewed on my podcast, he, he was going through at the beginning of the pandemic, a very, he was suffering with a very rare kind of cancer. And this is around the time that I actually started to get to know Don better because I, there was some issue in the family and we hadn't talked for a long time. And uh, at a time when, you know, him suffering with his cancer, he deserved, you know, out of anyone who deserved to be afraid of COVID, he actually, the first time we met, hugs me and then hugs some of my family members who were afraid and <laughs> probably wanted to isolate. And he told me he, you know, prefers that human touch, that human connection, um, and he prefers to see human smiles rather than cover our face. And it just reminded me, thanks to him, that, you know, us Christians and us as fallen beings, we, we sometimes fear things like suffering, things like death, death, things like COVID, things like nuclear war, things like war itself. Um, we fear those things above God. And I think that all of these things need to be reminders that we should put fear of God first. Um, and I actually just wanted to read this quote by C.S. Lewis. You know, he, he talked about the time of the atomic age and the, the time of the atomic bomb. And, and people asked him what we should do in, in the time of the atomic bomb. And, and he wrote in an essay, I'm just going to read it here. It says, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we lived to an in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, quote, why as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you were already living in the age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors in aesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world 
which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. So I think this kind of goes to the same exact principle we were talking about earlier, just trying to make sure that our lives are in order, because the truth is, is we are condemned to death and we need to be reminded of that constantly because you know, in time, in, in the times that are good, we, we, get, we forget that. But then there are, are times of suffering, like the pandemic or times of war, like right now. And sometimes we, we forget in this normalcy bias that, you know, World War II was only 100 years ago. And, and we are still the same human beings. We do not live in this kind of Hegelian arc of history where we have reached the end of history and times will always be good. I think history is more that man distances himself from God and then uh, they, they fall because of it again. So I, I really take C.S. Lewis's wisdom here to heart. Uh, and what I've been trying to do is make sure that I'm right by my family and right by my community. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't neglect politics. I still think that there is room for criticizing policy and and advising and and praying that our leaders are are led by Christ and that they too will also have this understanding that we are condemned to death and the kingdom of earth will end and that it is the eternal kingdom which we should have our hearts focused on so i just wanted to say that before we finished up because you know even i get too focused and become too fearful of war. And I, I read the high line, headlines every day on antiwar.com about you know how the U.S. is currently sending nuclear weapons to Europe, which they are doing. And they're trying to allow, it, allow Europe to be able to deliver our nukes themselves and streamline, streamlining their, their nuclear programs. Uh, and the fact that Ukraine has ruled out peace talks with Russia, so long as Putin is president of Russia. And I keep all of these things in mind and I hyper-focus on them. But at the end of the day, um, we are condemned to death. Um, and whether it's by nuke, whether it's because our leaders here are not the libertarians we want them to be, um, and they get us a nuclear war, I, I hope that I can be an influence on my family and my community so that they, they turn to Christ and acknowledge that we need his forgiveness because we are all fall, fallen, as is said in, in Roman 3. None of us are capable of, of salvation and we all need Christ. Um, so that, that is, I think, if, if I were to say that there's anywhere where Christians are maybe looking at this war in a, in a wrong way, I think it's insofar as Christians are not remembering that we are forgiven and that we are already saved and that Jesus Christ is already won on the cross and defeated death. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where my mind has been on. I know I just went on a rant there, but I think it's very important 
that all Christians and all libertarian Christians remember that the kingdom of earth is not our kingdom. We are not of this kingdom. We are of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Amen. I just let you go, man. That was good. There's so much there. I wish I had a notepad in front of me because there were so many things I wanted to like remember to chime in. I can't remember half of it, but the theme there, I think that's really important that I took away is that, you know, I think sometimes we get so caught up whether, and it can, this can be on both sides, as you said, that you have to check yourself as well in terms of not letting yourself be consumed by anxiety. But just as much as anxiety about our security shouldn't compel you or me to become so entrenched in our libertarian opposition to war and fear of war that we let it consume us and overtake our faith and our hope in Christ. I think that's largely what's happening, but not from a libertarian perspective with a lot of the world right now and a lot of the Christian world. I think in some respect, a lot of Christians are detached a little bit from the history and the tradition in which Christians spent a lot of times not being safe, not, not enjoying sort of the luxuries that a lot of Christians enjoy today, although not all, because there's there's a thriving Christian church in China right now, even though it's a very dangerous place to be a Christian, but there's something about that. You know what I mean? It's like we here in the more Western countries and stuff, I think it's, and this I'm going to include myself in this. I know this about myself and I try to humble myself and do what I can to account for this. But I know that because of the comfort and relative well-being that I've been raised in, that my faith in Christ is in some ways different than someone who has placed faith in Christ in a place where they might get killed if they were caught by the right people. And even as Christian persecution seems to be on the rise here in the West, it's nothing compared to these other places or compared to what different martyrs of the faith have endured throughout the history of the church. And what that connects to, like you said, is like, we need to not let fear of death whether that death come through natural causes like a virus, which is something some people, including Christians, struggled with in the past few years, or whether that death comes by Russia or China or some other foreign government or our own government or whatever, we need to be focused on like the Great Commission, on, on doing what Christ called us to do and not let our fear of those other things happening compel us to act in a way where not only are we not focusing on doing what Christ tells us to do, but then we're almost doing the opposite and we're wielding the sword in a way that, you know, not just what I said earlier, where maybe some people are trying to justify the military apparatus to spread Christian values, but sometimes it can be just a defensive, like we need to preserve our safety. And although there's nothing inherently sinful about just the desire to preserve your safety, that can't come at the expense of, you know, going back to that like collectivization. Like it's okay to take some measures to preserve your own safety and your own family safety and even your own community safety. But the minute preserving your safety means coming at the expense of other people's safety and justifying acts of aggression that, you know, if you went and carried out as an individual, you know would be wrong. But somehow we sometimes we justify it when it's done through the state or military apparatus, again, those are definitely some of the rationalizations I think that we have to be careful of, not least of all because of everything that we just said, the devastation that it causes, 
the grief that I believe that it causes our Lord and our Savior, and also the fact that it keeps us from doing what we're supposed to be doing. So, you know, I definitely wholeheartedly agree with all that and the pitfalls that come there. And I think libertarianism, being anti-war, all this stuff, it's really like, these are like secondary terms, right? Like, I think first and foremost, we're Christians and we're trying to live life after Christ. In our attempts to do that consistently, these other things are sort of like a consequence of that desire to do that consistently. We end up being libertarian in our view of government and anti-war, anti-aggressive you know, war at the very least in our view of these things going on. You know, smarter people than you and I have, have gone great into depth over the current Russia and Ukraine crisis. And you definitely mentioned some things going on right there. But for trying to, you know, more specifically look at the Russian-Ukraine crisis, which is kind of like one of the ones that's very prominent in today's media, although there's certainly wars going on elsewhere as well. But with the limited time we have here left today, I thought maybe we could just do our best to try to give people who maybe aren't as familiar with what's going on or who maybe they know you know stuff about it, but they don't know the right things or they haven't maybe thought about it in terms of the context that we just established here in, in trying to think of the Christian response to this. You know, what's going on with this crisis in terms of Russia and Ukraine and what should our specific prayers be, do you think? Yeah. And if anyone wants longer detailed history of this, I've done many interviews on this. Most recently, I've done one with Ethan Holmes, who is a friend of mine and a reporter for Sputnik News, which is a Russian news outlet. And then I also interviewed Benjamin Oblo, who is the author of How the West Brought War to Ukraine. And we did like an hour and a half long podcast about the history starting from the 1990s and the fall of the Soviet Union. So yeah, give me those links after we're done the show and I'll, I'll make sure to put them in the show notes for people. Yeah, well, and just to kind of like rush through it really quick, the Soviet Union fell in the 1990s and this was partially responsible because of the United States funding of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And Hillary Clinton has recently boasted about this. I think it was actually in March. She said that we should do something similar with the Ukrainians currently in, in the current conflict. And then she, she made a small comment where she's like, well, there were some consequences. And by those consequences, she means that she was funding directly Mujahideen fighters who became Al-Qaeda fighters who attacked us on 9-11, including Osama bin Laden. So that's kind of like the pretext of this war. And essentially, after the Soviet Union fell, the United States gave verbal assurances that they would not expand east of Germany. And this included within Germany and outside of Germany. And a lot of criticism has been made that these were not written assurances and they should have been written assurances. And I will agree. But the fact that the United States made verbal assurances and then continued not to follow through with even those verbal assurances, at the very least, demonstrated to the Russians and everyone else that the United States could not be trusted their word could not be trusted either, if not their verbal treaties. And Putin made it known that he was not happy with these things going on. And we knew about the fact that certain things we were doing were definitely, uh, this could provoke the Russians and <laughs> stuff like So it's not like it came out of nowhere, like, oh, wow, you guys were upset about this the whole time? We just didn't know. It's like, No, we, we knew and they knew we knew. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Putin's been saying this the whole time. 
There are interviews going back. I mean, 2008 is the earliest I've watched where Putin is clearly saying that NATO expansion is a serious security threat to Russia. And he has constantly put a red line in Georgia and Ukraine. And people currently advocating for the Russian and Ukraine war neglect to mention the Georgian war that occurred after NATO troops were exercising in the Georgian border. And the United States implied that it wanted to add Georgia into NATO. But the West has consistently added new countries into NATO. And our current CIA director, William Burns, actually in a WikiLeaks leak, he wrote a memo saying that Putin in his meeting with him said that Ukraine is an absolute red line. And the title of the memo is Nyet means Nyet. And people can find that in the WikiLeaks. And he's our current CIA director. So we've known that this was a red line for Russia this entire time. And people all over the political spectrum, from John Mearsheimer, who's more right wing from the Kissingerian school, the realist school of foreign policy, as well as Kissinger himself and Noam Chomsky, who's anarcho-syndicalist on the left. We've had countless figures say that this policy is insane of expanding towards Russia's border, yet we have continued to do so. Yep. So that's kind of a brief history. And it's yeah. not just the NATO expansion alone. We have to remember it's also the U.S. leaving nuclear arms treaties and building up. We left the anti-ballistic missile treaty under Bush, and we have left many nuclear treaties. And Trump also left some treaties during his presidency. Right. So. And in a similar way, like you brought up bin Laden earlier, and, you know, in a similar way to, you know, bin Laden had a list of grievances about America and then attacked innocent civilians and justified it based upon the fact that we do the same thing, which doesn't make the evil actions of bin Laden and, and those who were under him not evil. But it certainly makes them, like, understandable. And I think, you know, it's important to know that these things, like, didn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like Russia woke up one day and said, you know, it'd be really fun to just invade Ukraine, you know, for the... <laughs> it was like the bear was poked with a stick multiple times and it gave a lot of warning growls and now we're dealing with the consequences. And I definitely encourage people to check out your interviews, check out antiwar.com just in general as well. And there's so much we could go into in this topic, but we're out of time. But again, just I think like we said before, like try to approach it with the mentality of knowing that we are all going to die, knowing that Christ died for us and that he calls us to be salt and light into the world and to treat the least of these as if we were doing unto him there's real human consequences to this war. And if Jesus was here today, I don't think he would be sitting here going, let's go back and let's focus on assigning blame. He'd be like, first and foremost, like, let's stop slaughtering these innocent men and women and children. Let's stop the violence, you know? And that means that people have to be willing to come to the table and to swallow their pride and to humble themselves. And that's a very, if we want to talk about a Christian response to this war, I think it means praying that our leaders would find some Christ-like humility to come to the table and say, we got long-term issues that we have to discuss and work out, but right now, let's do whatever we have to do to stop the violence and pull the emergency brake on the train that we're riding because it's heading towards a destination that we don't really want to go if it continues. Yeah, just one last comment. I, I want to just read this verse. Paul writes in Timothy, he says that, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, 
that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I just want to remind people that God also wants us to live peaceful lives. And he also yes. wants to pray for yes. our, our rulers who are out of line of God's word. So I just wanted to read that verse before we sign off. Yeah, no, 100%. Liam, thank you so much for coming on and for being the first guest of this new project that I'm doing. We're definitely going to have you back on. You brought up the Magdeburg Confessions, which you know I know that's something I, I definitely want to get into later on. So we'll have to have you back on in a, in a month or two once we find some time to maybe go into the history of that because I think it's a really fascinating history lesson and, and things to learn there that pertain to the topics at hand. But before you go, you know, let the people know again where they can find you in terms of your podcast and social media and all that. Yep. So my Twitter handle is M Liam McCollum. And then on YouTube, it's just Liam McCollum. And then everyone should check out the new Ask an Austrian series that I'm managing with the Mises Caucus and submit questions on our website at askanaustrian.com. We invite different Austrian-related guests on the show or libertarian-related guests on the show to answer questions about economics, libertarian theory, and ethics. And we've had, I think we've had like seven or eight guests on the show now. So Gene Epstein will be our upcoming guest. And then, oh, nice. uh, yeah, so everyone should go over to the website and submit questions there. Who was the last one? Was it Walter Block? Was he the last one that was it? Yeah, I just listened to that one last week. And yeah, I have some disagreements with Walter, but man, he's such a like an entertaining, funny guy to listen to. Like he just like, he's like smiling the whole time. I know, <laughs> just such about a... little phrases out of the interview. He's he's hilarious. And yeah. I'm just honored to be able to have this experience and be able to talk with these people when we're preparing uh, the interviews. So I'm I'm very thankful and I'm excited for that project and everyone should check it out. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Liam, for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in and listening. And uh, we'll see you next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.